Welcome back, Freedom Packed family. A happy Monday to you all. Today on the show, we are joined by Nia Eyal. I just want to give a quick preface to this interview to say how delighted I am to have Nia on the show, considering this is a man that we have hounded for an interview for absolutely months. We probably had five, perhaps six rejections off him over the last seven to eight months before today's podcast. So you can understand how delighted we are to have him on the show. So before I delve into Nia's bio and a background into him, Nia has just come out with a new book called Indistractable. On this show, we only really like to give airtime to authors or maybe business leaders or or anyone like that that we actually reside with, that we believe that they have a message for good. Um, What we particularly like about Indistractable is just how practical, how research-based. Nia says that becoming an indistractable individual is the skill of the century. I think that at the time of this release, Nia's book is just about to come out. So if you guys wish, you could check it out. I read it. It is a very, very good and useful book. So just delving into Nia some more. Nia has been dubbed the prophet of habit forming technology. You've probably heard of him from his best selling book, Hooked which is just everywhere, any book page on Instagram or anything, you would struggle to avoid seeing them, you know, posting about that book. Nia is also an angel investor. He has invested in companies such as Eventbrite, Refresh, Seven Cups, Anchor FM, just some of these companies which he says actually uses his habit-forming techniques. Nia also likes to look into behavioral design. He's particular about behavioral psychology. Nia is also a writer, a consultant, and he teaches about the intersection of psychology, technology, and business. So in this podcast today, you are going to learn about just how big of a problem distraction is in this society, how traction is the opposite of distraction, and the practical and simple steps that you can take to becoming an indistractable individual. So without any further ado, Nia Eyal, welcome to the Freedom Pact. Great to be here. Thanks so much for having me. It is amazing to finally get you on. One place I'd love to start is that I saw on Instagram a couple of days ago that you were wearing a very nicely fitted t-shirt which had indistractable on the front. I noticed that you were at the gym and I'd love to know, I mean, does this actually work as a deterrent or does it spur people on to try to test it? 
<laughs> well, once in a while, I do have someone jump up and say, uh, "Hey, did I distract you now?" <laughs> but but uh, normally, you know, the reason I wear the shirt is not for other people. I wear the shirt for myself. Uh, this is part of what I call an identity pact, which I talk about more in the book. But basically, an identity pact is when we use our sense of self-image to help us do what we want to do and steer away from doing the things we don't want to do. So much in the same way that someone calls themselves a religious Jew or a religious Muslim or a vegan or a vegetarian or whatever the moniker might be, we know that there, there have been several studies now that show that using some kind of moniker, some kind of identity can help us change our behavior. So when I look at myself in the mirror and I see indistractable across my chest, it reminds me, okay, that's who I am. I am indistractable. I'm the kind of person who does what they say they're going to do. Let me bring you back to a quote which you said right at the beginning of an interview in 2017. You were quoted on Inside Quest as saying, you teach what you most need to learn. Your latest book, Indistractable, does your book apply to that statement? Uh, in spades, in spades. I, uh, you know, it's interesting. So uh, folks who don't know me well will say, oh, yeah, you wrote this book because you have so much willpower, right? You have so much self-control. And that is exactly the opposite of what is true, that I do not have good self-control. Uh, that's why I wrote the book, because I needed to find a technique to help me make sure that I stay on task and do what it is I want to do with my life. Uh, you know, I used to be clinically obese at one point in my life. Uh, I've always struggled with uh, uh, making sure that I, I, I do what I, I – uh, I've always struggled with distraction, frankly. Before I wrote this book and figured out this methodology, uh, this was a problem in, in my life for sure. And so that, that, that phrase uh, exactly applies to me. That's why I wrote the book. So interesting that you mentioned willpower there. I recently read, well, I recently reread The One Thing by Gary Keller. And in it, Keller repeatedly hammers home that, that willpower is. is it's a myth, essentially. It's like a muscle which depletes throughout the day. So do you think that it's better to create routines and structures which which we don't have to rely on willpower in that sense? Yes, absolutely. And we know, in fact, that there's been a lot of misinformation about this idea of willpower. So a few years ago, there was actually a book called Willpower, uh, which codify this research into the field of what we called ego depletion. And ego depletion is this idea that you run out of willpower, that it's kind of a depletable resource, it's like gas in a gas tank, and eventually you run out of it. And it turns out that that research uh, does not replicate. It's part of this current crisis in the social psychology field where uh, other studies that have tried to re recreate Roy Baumeister's work can't do it. And there are all kinds of you know, magical properties of, of uh, ego depletion. Uh, Baumeister did these experiments where he would give people a difficult task and then he would give them uh, lemonade and magically they could continue to persevere. Well, it turns out that those studies don't replicate except for one group of people. So ego depletion does not really exist, in my opinion, from the meta-studies I've seen. Uh, it does not really exist except for in one group of people. In one group of people, they actually do experience this phenomenon where they run out of willpower, kind of like gas in a gas tank. And it turns out this study was conducted by Carol Dweck at Stanford, and she found that the only people who really did exemplify ego depletion were people who believed that willpower was a finite resource. I mean, think about that for a second. Your belief 
in whether you would run out of willpower made it true. So this is this is incredibly important. And this is really why I'm on this crusade to disavow people of this nonsense that technology is hijacking your brain, uh, that you know people are making you use technology and making you distracted. It's the same mythology. It's the same uh, in, in, incorrect view of what I call the temperament. So the, there's a chapter in the book called Reimagining Your Temperament, which is really about how do we see ourselves differently as opposed to seeing ourselves as, oh, I have weak self-control or an addictive personality or a short attention span, all these BS lies we tell ourselves. We, we need to realize that telling ourselves this stuff makes it so. And so we need to be very careful about the script we tell ourselves because we are listening to our, our conversations in our head, right? We listen to this stuff. And so we, we, we have to make sure we don't believe in that rubbish uh, or it really does backfire. I always think of the self-talk as sort of the operating system for the computer in which we're running. And what we feed our minds, what we, what we tell ourselves is, is what will produce the outcomes. Is that fair right. to say? Absolutely, absolutely. And we can use that to our advantage. Or if we're not c- careful, it can use us to its disadvantage. That uh, if we are not careful, if we believe these lies, like, oh, I'm spent, I can't do it anymore, I, I have no more willpower, which is, which is the ego depletion way of looking at things, it becomes true. Whereas we, we now know that there's a, there's a theory that willpower is not a depletable resource like uh, gas in a gas tank, but rather ego uh, that willpower is is an emotion this comes from michael inslich who posits that you know you you wouldn't say that uh, i was having a great time chatting with you but then i ran out of happy that doesn't make any <laughs> sense i if i'm angry with you i wouldn't say oh i was really angry but now i'm fine because i ran out of it that that doesn't make any sense so it turns out that ego de- that that willpower is in fact not a depletion depletable resource it is just an emotion it's a feeling, and you don't run out of a feeling. Uh, it, uh, a feeling crests and then subsides. And so in the book, I teach folks ways to deal with these negative feelings as opposed to saying, oh, I'm spent. There's nothing I can do. Give me some Ben and Jerry's ice cream uh, and let me you know, watch Netflix because there's nothing I can do otherwise. No, that's, that's very self-defeating. Instead, what we should do is to use this self-talk for good. To say, okay, I've worked hard today. I'm feeling a little low energy. How can I process this in a healthful manner as opposed to a hurtful manner? And, and we can use those same uncomfortable emotional states to help us do what we really want to do as opposed to being slaves to these uncomfortable states. What I love in particular about you is I love the the use of studies. I love how everything is so research-backed. It really does lead to a trust between the author and the consumer. So I do greatly thank you for that. Oh, well, thank you. You know that that means so much to me because uh, you know a lot of uh, what you read in in the personal development self help industry is well this worked for me so it's going to work for everybody right <laughs> take a cold shower every morning first thing in the day because that's yeah. what worked for me but where is the study like show yeah. me the peer reviewed study I want it in an academic journal and so everything in the book and and thank you for appreciating this because that that's the kind of book I want to read I want to read a book that not only did the author test these techniques to make sure they worked for them but more importantly that there were t- techniques that that scientists actually uh, uncovered and tested in in controlled studies that uh, have have proven the test of time. I couldn't agree more. And and I do feel as if over time that although you may not be shouting it the loudest and you may not specifically appeal to more people, I feel like over time, over a longer period of time, I feel like you 
and the people which follow your approach of being evidence based i think over you know over the, the longer stretch you guys will win that's that's what i truly do feel like I, I I appreciate that, and it, and I want to emphasize here that it's not I, I'm not pushing uh, a particular uh, tactic. What I what, what this book is really about is a strategy, right? Tactics are what we do. Strategy is why we do it. And this strategy, this four part model, uh, if you know the four part model, you can use it to come up with your own tactics customized to your life. That's the important part. That's the part I I I, I spent five years. Uh, you know, getting the research around so that I could draw this picture that anyone can imprint on their mind and and utilize uh, throughout their lives. Now, the specifics of try this technique, try that technique, that that stuff. You know, we we could find that at some future point a study doesn't replicate, or maybe there's a new technique that comes out. That's fine. As long th- those are the tactics. As long as you understand the strategy, that's really what you need. That's the toolkit uh, for for living an indistractable life. The book is called Indistractable. I would love to know, since you are so great with these case studies, and and I I thoroughly enjoy reading them, and also what I love as well is the use of you delving back in time. I really like that. So do you have any studies, any hard research, any statistics that confirms that we are living, in fact, in a real distracted society? Well, yes and no. <laughs> so part of what I uh, talk about in the book is that uh, this is not a new problem. So I, I don't believe that technology has somehow created distraction, right? Socrates and Aristotle talked about the nature of akrasia, uh, this tendency that we had to do things against our better interests. That was 2,500 years ago. They talked about what a distracting place the world is. Uh, so this is certainly not a new problem. Uh, I do believe, though, that if you are looking for distraction, if you do not have the skill set to be indistractable, well, then they're going to get you. Right, and that, and you don't need a study to show you that. I mean, we we know that the fact that technology is so persuasive and pervasive, the fact that you have, you know, a cell phone in your pocket that has access to the world's information, that you can watch limitless videos, limitless news articles, you know, you can be entertained forever and ever. If you are looking for distraction, it is easier than ever to find. And if you don't know these techniques, they're going to get you. Right, as an industry insider, the book I wrote before Indistractable was called Hooked: How to Build Habit-Forming Products. I know how these products are made to keep you checking and pecking away at your phones, right? I know from the inside of the industry. There is no doubt that these companies understand what makes you click and what makes you tick better than you understand yourself. So if you're not careful, they're going to get you. All that being said, we are far, far more powerful than they are, at least with existing technology. I don't know what's coming down the tubes. I don't know what, you know, what we might see in a few years, maybe virtual reality or augmented reality or whatever. Maybe that's going to hijack our brains in some way. What we see today is totally uh, in our control, with the exception of children and people who are pathologically addicted. For the rest of us, for 90 99% of the population – this is something we can do something about. As powerful as these technologies are, uh, we have way more power than they do if we know what to do. Before you got to a point where you were developing these tactics, early on, I'd love to know what are some of the initial distractions that you dealt with before you learned how to obviously become indistractable. Oh my gosh, where do I start? This is this is going to be an embarrassing laundry list. Uh, so, <laughs> 
so whether it was uh, it, it, so so this kind of seminal moment in why I knew I had to write this book was when uh, I found myself playing with my daughter one afternoon. We had some time together, and we were uh, reading this activity book of things that daddies and daughters could do together. And one of the activities was to ask each other this question. I remember it clear as day. The question was, if you could have any superpower, what superpower would you want? And I wish I could tell you what she said, but I can't because in that moment uh, when she was answering the question, I was on my phone. I was checking email or looking at something on social media. I don't even remember what I was looking at. But next thing I knew when I looked up, uh, she had left the room. She got the message that she was less important than my cell phone, and she decided to play some t with some toy outside the room. And I felt horrible. And more so, if I told you that that happened only once, I'd be lying. Uh, not only did it happen with my daughter, it happened with my work. I would sit down to write and I'd get distracted and I wouldn't be able to do my work. Uh, I'd uh, neglect going to the gym, taking care of my body. And uh, I saw this happening again and again and again it, with all different types of mediums. It wasn't just technology doing it to me. There was all kinds of distractions in my life. And so once I framed the question of, man, you know, what superpower would I want? You know, what what would be the skill that I would most want? And 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 I really believe it's the skill to do what it is I say I'm going to do. The power to be indistractable. I mean, imagine how powerful you could be. Imagine what your life would be like if you did what you said you're going to do. Right? The things you know what to do already. We know how to be healthy, right? If you want a healthy body, you have to exercise, eat right. Is it? Do you need to buy a diet book to tell you that? No, you just have to do it. If you want good relationships, you have to be fully present with the people you love. If you want to excel at your job, you got to do the work, especially the hard work. We don't need to buy productivity books to tell us that. The question is not what to do. We already know what to do. The question has to be, why don't we do it? And so once I formulated that question, that was what I decided would be my superpower. That's what I wanted to figure out. And when I went looking for, okay, where's the book about how to become indistractable? Where's the book on you know, how to control your attention and choose your life? I couldn't find it. Uh, all I found were a bunch of books that told me it's technology's fault. Technology's doing it to you and offered no solutions other than you know, a digital detox, uh, which doesn't work. I've tried it. It doesn't work for the same reason fad diets don't work, right? If you just cut yourself off for 30 days, what happens on day 31? You go right back to your old behaviors because you haven't figured out what's really going on inside you, why you, you get distracted in the first place. So that, that was really the genesis of, of this project. So how would you describe indistractable? What does an indistractable life look like? Yeah, so an indistractable person is someone who strives to do what they say they're going to do. It doesn't mean you never get distracted. I still get distracted from time to time. But I don't keep getting distracted like the dummy I used to be by the same goddamn things every day. I would get distracted by the same thing over and over again. And as we know, I don't, I don't remember who said it. Some people say it's Einstein, but nobody really knows. Insanity is defined as doing the same thing and expecting different results. And we're, we're insane. We're crazy. We keep getting distracted day after day after day. We have to-dos on our to-do list. We don't get them done, and they go to the next day and the next day. We say we're going to work out. We don't. We say we're going to get that big project done. We don't. This is crazy. This is insane. And so the idea is when you are indistractable, you are the kind of person who strives to do what they say they're going to do. So when you do get distracted, you have a methodology to understand why you got distracted, and most importantly, you can do something about it to fix it, to make sure you don't keep get dis getting distracted by the same things again and again. 
The first chapter of the book is called What's Your Superpower? You're quoted as saying in the 2018 Habit Forum that being indistractable is the skill of the century. For a bit more context for our audience, could you please explain exactly what the advantages are of becoming an indistractable person? Yeah, so when I, when I think about you know all the skills one could have, could you be creative, uh, a good leader, uh, you know, have a particular skill set that makes you really great at your job? The fact is, none of that stuff is worth anything if you don't actually do the work. If you can't sit down and produce, none of that stuff matters. If you're constantly swinging from one thing to the next, from email to group chat channels to Googling to meetings to workplace gossip all day long, you can't do the work. You can't apply the skill set no matter what that skill set is. So the macro skill of the century, the, the, the skill that is the, that encompasses first and foremost what you need to be able to do in order to do your best work must be the ability to do what you say you're going to do. And by the way, I don't tell you what to do, right? You need to do what is consistent with your values. And it's not for me to tell you that you should do one thing and not the other. If, you, if, if what's consistent with your values is to play video games all day, great, do it if that's what you want to do with your time. What I want to help you do is no matter what it is you set your mind to do, I want to help you accomplish whatever it is you yourself want to do. That's why I think this is the skill of the century. Is it fair to say that becoming indistractable, it's gives us that control over our life. I, I know that you mentioned this in the title. It says that becoming indistractable allows us to, to really take back control. So is that is that how you truly feel that that not that doing exactly what we say we're gonna do? It gives us that that sense of control back. It's the antidote to chaos, really. Absolutely. And I, I think in this day and age, and it's only going to get uh, more so that there's a real bifurcation between people who recognize that uh, their attention and their lives are being manipulated and controlled by others, not just big bad tech. Uh, there's, you know, whether it's your boss, whether it's your kids, whether it's your significant other, whether, whether all kinds of things can can control your behaviors, uh, including, of course, the technology we use with us every day. Uh, you know, of course, the news. The news is a crazy culprit, right? Constantly, we're constantly dancing around our minds with what's going on in the news, whether it's serving us or not. There's all kinds of distractions out there, but there will be a bifurcation. Uh, and there is already a bifurcation between people who realize that uh, others can manipulate their behaviors and they do something about it by becoming indistractable and people who kind of go through life having their attention manipulated and their lives controlled really by others and not by themselves. Now, it's not that we ever finish becoming indistractable, right? It's it, it, Becoming indistractable, we're all on this journey. What What is the turning point is when someone unplugs from the matrix, so to speak, and understand and understands the way the world really works. That companies clearly have an incentive to monopolize your attention and time. Uh, the news media, uh, the Facebook, all of these companies, they make money by monetizing your time and attention, as does your boss, right? Your boss wants to monetize your time and attention to do what your boss wants you to do, as does your relationships. All of these things can be distracting. The idea here is to be the kind of person who recognizes what's going on 
and to be in control of our attention and time so that we can have the kind of lives we want as opposed to the lives that others decide for us. Before we start to move this conversation on from the problem and start talking about some of the tactics, I think one thing that everyone listening right now would agree on is that we all would love to become indistractable. And so my question is, does being indistractable, does it take a certain type of person to develop these tactics? Or would you say that anyone listening to this right now, no matter what kind of person they are, they have the ability to become indistractable? I would say that 95 to 99% of the people uh, out there can use this. Now, the, I think the exception are people who are struggling with some kind of pathology. So if you have uh, obsessive compulsive disorder, if you're struggling with a, with a real addiction, not just, ooh, I like Facebook a lot, not overuse, we're talking about real addiction, a persistent compulsive dependency on a behavior or substance that harms the user, those kind of folks, you, you may need some higher octane stuff. This might not be uh, what you use if you are pathologically addicted to something or if you're struggling with, with, uh, with something like obsessive compulsive disorder, you, you might need a, a additional help than the book can provide. This book is really written for, for the, the majority of us um, who are not struggling with pathology, but sometimes we struggle with overuse. We really appreciate that. And Lewis and I, we are, we are chomping at the bit. We are ready. You've dangled the carrot in front of our face. So... <laughs> Where should we start? Should we start with the internal triggers, the external triggers? Where would you like to start in, in delving into some of the solutions? Sure. So when we think about the four, there's only four steps. The four steps of becoming indistractable, I'll just kind of list them out and then we can go into more depth. The first step is to master internal triggers. The second step is to make time for traction. The third step is to hack back external triggers. And the fourth step is to prevent distraction with pacts. So you can place these four techniques, these four recommendations, kind of like uh, uh, north, east, south, and west on, uh, on a compass, right? So you've got the four points of a compass. Uh, I want you to think of a, a, a plus mark, okay? So you've got the horizontal axis and you've got the vertical axis. On the horizontal axis, I want you to think on the right and on the left, there are arrows pointing outwards, to the left and to the right, okay? Now, to really talk about this problem of distraction, this problem of why don't we do what we say we're going to do, let's define what distraction really is. The opposite of distraction is not focus. The opposite of distraction is traction. Traction and distraction come from the same Latin root, trahare, which means to pull. So traction is any action that you take that pulls you towards what you want to do. Now, you'll notice both traction and distraction end in the same word. They both end in A-C-T-I-O-N, action, reminding us that both traction and distraction, these aren't things that happen to us. These are actions that we take. So traction is any action you take that pulls you towards what you want. Distraction is any action that pulls you away from what you want, anything that you didn't intend to do. So now that we have the definition of what is traction, what is distraction, the, what this frees us from is this moral uh, judgment around placing uh, our, our uh, values on top of other people or even on ourselves actually. So when we think of, oh, you know, for one person might say, oh, you know, the playing Candy Crush or a video game or Facebook, that's a waste of time, that's a distraction. Well, not really. If that's what you plan to do with your time, 
it's traction. Uh, it's no more uh, or less morally uh, superior or inferior than watching a football game, right? Anything you plan to do with your time with intent is traction. Anything that is not that is distraction. Even productive stuff, right? So when you sit down at your desk and say, oh, I got that big project I need to do. I need to do my taxes or whatever it is. Uh, I need to go to the gym. And you don't do it. And many times when people will say, well, uh, it's because I needed to check email or I had this other thing that I, I needed to do. And that's kind of worky, right? Email feels productive. It feels like I'm doing something that, that I should be doing. No, what's happened is distraction has tricked you. Distraction has made you think that checking email when you planned to do the hard work is what you should be doing. But in fact, anything that you do which is not what you plan to do with intent is distraction. Okay, So that's the, the horizontal axis, traction, traction and distraction. Now remember the vertical axis on that plus mark, I want you to imagine two arrows pointing into the center uh, where, where, where these two axes meet, two arrows pointing inwards, and these two arrows represent internal triggers and external triggers. External triggers are anything in your environment which prompts you to action with some kind of information around you, right, outside of the body. So all the pings, dings, rings, and things that prompt you to either traction or distraction. If you get an alarm first thing in the morning that says, hey, time to wake up to go to the gym, and that's what you intended to do with your time, that's traction. That's great. But if you wake up in the morning and the first notification on your phone is check Instagram or Facebook and what you really wanted to do was get ready for your day or go to the gym or do whatever it is you wanted to do, well, now it's a distraction. So those are the external triggers. Now, the, the, the last part of this four-part model, the, the north uh, in, our, in our compass here, are the internal triggers. And the internal triggers are the most important part of this entire model uh, because it turns out that most distractions – come from within. And this is really important for us to realize that distraction is really about, for the most part, what we feel. It's about uncomfortable emotional states that we seek to escape. So when we're uh, lonely, we check Facebook. When we're uncertain, we Google. When we are bored, we check Reddit or sports scores or whatever it might be. And unless we deal with those internal triggers, unless we understand why we are being prompted to traction or distraction from within us, we will always get distracted by something. So that's the very first step is to master our internal triggers. Then we work clockwise. We, we make time for traction. Then we hack back the external triggers. And then finally, we prevent distraction with pacts. So that's kind of the 30,000-foot view. To clarify, the four process model, we've got master internal triggers, make time for traction, Focus on the external triggers and then prevent distraction with pacts. Hack back I, the external triggers. Yeah, hack back the external triggers. Right. I love what you talked about with the internal triggers. And I love how you linked it to feeling as if you've been product like thinking that you're being productive when in essence you're doing you're not sticking to your word, you're not doing what you said that you would do. And I right. noticed that in the book you gave the example that you would be sitting down at your desk writing the book and you would take time. You would think, oh, I'll just go and Google it, quote unquote, for some research. What we, what we all do from time to time, we all say we'll, we'll do it. But, but in essence, that's actually a, an internal trigger trying to avoid some sort of pain. Right. So I'd love to link this idea to why you say that 
time management is actually pain management. And that a, a huge majority of what we do is not motivated really by pleasure. It's actually motivated by avoiding pain. So right. how can we master that internal trigger? Yeah. So let me just give kind of a, a bit of context. Uh, I wouldn't say most uh, of our behavior. I would say all of our behavior. Uh, this is called the homeostatic response, that when the body feels some kind of discomfort, uh, that we can't regulate ourselves uh, the internally, then the body makes us do something. So for example, if you feel hunger, you eat. If you feel cold, you put on a jacket. If you feel hot again, you take it off. So physiologically, we know this to be true, that all of our behaviors are prompted by discomfort from some kind of homeostatic imbalance. Now, the same applies for our psychological states, that when we feel something that we don't want to feel, loneliness, boredom, uncertainty, fatigue, whatever it might be, when we feel something we don't want to feel, we also act, even the pursuit of pleasurable feelings. So when, when someone says they want something that feels pleasurable, remember, the brain doesn't get us to act because something feels good. It gets us to act because it felt good. It's about the memory of how something feels. And how does the brain get us to pursue something that feels good? Pain, discomfort, wanting, craving. There's a reason we say love hurts. Because neurologically speaking, that's exactly what's going on. When we feel an uncomfortable psychological sensation, that prompts us to action. So all behavior, even the pursuit of pleasure, is motivated by a desire to escape discomfort. And if that is true, if all behavior is motivated by a desire to escape discomfort, that must mean that time management is pain management. That if we are not doing what we want to do with our time, the core reason, the first place to start has to be what feeling are we looking to escape that we cannot cope with in the way we want, that we're turning to a distraction as opposed to turning to distraction. This is absolutely fascinating to me. And I love what you talk about. By I've read things like this in things like Peter Drucker managing oneself. I've read, read it in numerous different books. Could we just talk about I get these uncomfortable internal triggers. It could be telling me to go and check Instagram mindlessly. It could be telling me to go on a porn site or it could be telling me to go and eat a McDonald's burger or, or whatever unhelpful trigger. How can I deal with that internal trigger? This is fascinating to me. Yeah, so there's only, there's only two ways. The first way is to fix the source of the problem. So uh, that would involve figuring out what's causing the source of the internal trigger, what's causing the pain that you are seeking to escape, and fixing that problem. Uh, this is most prevalent when we think about the workplace. You know, many of us work in work environments which, are, which have a confluence of two conditions which have been shown to cause, not just be correlated, to actually cause depression and anxiety disorder. There's a type of work environment that literally drives us crazy. And that is a work environment with high expectations and low control. This is a study done by Stansfield and Candy. And what they've shown is that when you have the confluence of those two factors in a workplace culture, 
you create these internal triggers, right? When people feel anxious and depressed, those are sources of internal triggers. And so what do they do? They, again, all, all our actions are prompted by a desire to escape discomfort. How do people escape that discomfort? They send more stupid emails. They have more stupid meetings that don't need to be held. Why? To regain a sense of control and agency over their lives and their work lives. And so we have to either change the source of where that pain is coming from in our life and when we can't do that, and look, not every, you know, pain is part of the human condition, part of what drives me up the wall when it comes to the current state of the self-help and personal development industry is this lie that we've been told that if we are not satisfied, if we're not happy, we're not normal. And that is rubbish, that our species is designed for dissatisfaction. It is part of our DNA to constantly want more. If there was ever a branch of Homo sapiens that was satisfied, they were probably killed and eaten by our ancestors, right? Because that that branch didn't survive. So it is built into us to be dissatisfied. Now, we can either use that for good, that dissatisfaction, that wanting, that craving. We can use that for good because it helps us you know, reach for the stars. It helps us overturn despots. It helps us create world-changing uh, inventions and medicines. Or if we let it get the best of us, it can lead us down a harmful path. So we have to either change the source of the discomfort or learn to cope with it in a healthier manner. Those are the only two solutions. We're not designed for happiness. And, and I cannot stand this myth. I mean, essentially, this is actually why I've taken a somewhat of a, a little exodus from Instagram, because this idea that like we're all we're always supposed to be happy it it really <laughs> it, it makes me sick in all honesty <laughs> yeah I, you know and and the fact is that suffering is is what we all have in common and it should bring us closer right and i think you know the, where some people uh deal with it is can can be one extreme or the other i th- i think it needs to be a balance right i i'm not sure if i support this idea of well just meditate hmm. right i think meditation you know has been shown to have a lot of benefits Uh, One, I don't think it's for everyone. And two, I don't think it's for every problem, right? Because if you just meditate, if you just do the the former – sorry, the latter of the two techniques where you learn ways to cope with a discomfort and that way you cope with a discomfort is to meditate your problems away, that's not all that different from using some substance to uh, escape your problems, right? It's probably healthier certainly uh, physically. But if you're not also fixing the goddamn problem, well, then the problem remains, so unless you're going to become a monk, it's very difficult to really <laughs> escape your problems. So we need a balance. We need to realize when we can change the source of the discomfort. And when we really can't change the source of discomfort, then we can learn techniques to, to learn to cope with it in a healthier manner. And so I don't, I don't recommend meditation in the book, not because it's not an effective technique. It is definitely an effective technique if it works for you. I don't talk about it a, a ton because I think it's just been written about ad nauseum, like I, we all know. <laughs> yeah. So I, I don't talk about it in the book. What I do talk about are these three things we can do to to uh, cope with these in, internal triggers in a healthier manner, which is to reimagine the trigger, reimagine the task, and reimagine our temperament. And when we do these three things, now we have an arsenal. Like uh, we have a uh, we have more arrows in our quiver that we can use when we face these internal triggers. We can use these different techniques to help us deal with them in a healthier manner, again, to move us towards traction as opposed to letting us get distracted. So I feel I feel like the essence of this internal trigger is that we are sort of using a habit loop trigger to take some form of internal discomfort 
and to be able to use it to say use a more beneficial or effective technique like one example i'll give by you and tell me if if i'm on the right lines is whenever we're going through a difficult period say in business or in uh or or maybe even with the podcast uh say just something like that then whenever i feel some sort of internal trigger say it could be stress could be anxiety i think myself okay maybe i can rewire this to take action to send more emails to to come up with better processes is is that am i sort of on the right lines with it absolutely absolutely so i talk about this in the chapter on how to uh reimagine the task so when i write i feel all sorts of internal triggers uh not only do i feel uh boredom and anxiety right is anybody gonna like what i wrote is it gonna do well you know <laughs> is this the answer am i ra- down the right track you feel these negative internal triggers uh, the, all the time, uh, but the idea is how can you harness that? So one thing you can do is to escape it, is to say, this is hard, uh, I feel bored, I feel anxious, I feel uncomfortable, let me just go Google something or check email real quick or a Slack channel, right? But that's obviously hurtful, not helpful. Instead, what we can do is to focus more intently on those internal triggers. For example, curiosity is uncomfortable. It prompts us to continue to explore. What's the answer, right? This is, you know, nobody paid, uh, you know, or gave gave Isaac Newton an A plus for his all of his inventions and discoveries, right? Like, you know, people like Isaac Newton and Einstein and you know the, these inventors and writers and creators. What drives them is curiosity, is wanting to know the answer. Now, that internal trigger that is also a negative emotional state. That is something we seek to quell, and if we can use that for good if we can use that in a healthful manner it can drive us towards traction so this is in that in that chapter about how to reimagine the task i tell you these techniques for how you can learn to play anything this is in the words of ian bogos an expert i interviewed for for that chapter he teaches us how to make any task that we would otherwise find uh, something that we want to escape and turn into a task that we find uh, we can turn into play. Not not through spoonful of sugar type of Mary Poppins stuff. That stuff doesn't work. Those are called extrinsic rewards. But how to make the task itself more intrinsically uh, joyful. This sort of um, reminds me of what I took out of the book Flow by Mihai. Mm-hmm. where he talks about uh, creating these goals whilst you're doing something. So I started applying that to all kinds of, of different things, like mm. whilst, I, whilst I'm at the gym thinking, like, oh, can I really cut my rest times down? Can I sweat? Can I do all these all these other different types of things which create a whole nother level of, of mental focus? And it really drives focus so i I, i'm a fan of i I think where chicks and me i kind of left me dry not i didn't mean for that to rhyme but it did anyway (laughs) Uh, where i think it left me a a little bit wanting was i think he recognizes a phenomenon Hmm. uh when people are have found a task that they already enjoy i for the life of me can't figure out how to get into flow when i'm doing my taxes uh, and that's where it, it, that's when I'm going to get distracted. When I'm doing something I don't like. When I do something I like, 
no problem. <laughs> right? I'm, of course I'm not distracted. It's when I'm doing something I don't really enjoy. But then what do I do? And he's not very prescriptive from everything I've read of his. You know, he observes the phenomenon in basketball players and, you know, different, different uh, people, mostly athletes. But he doesn't give a great prescription for how we can – make something uncomfortable into flow. Uh, and so that I, I was hoping to fill that gap with this model. Um, just out of curiosity, what is your framework when it comes to doing work that you, you aren't enjoying and, and avoiding those triggers then? Because like you said, it is a different a different world than uh, when you are actually enjoying something. Yeah, so that's where we use these four techniques, right? So we master the internal triggers, we make time for traction, we hack back the external triggers, and we prevent distraction with packs. So uh, let's let's do this on the fly. I have no idea what you're going to say here, but give me a task that this would be relevant to you. So something that you want to do uh, that is consistent with your values, but you find yourself when you do it, you get distracted. Editing a podcast. <laughs> Editing a podcast. Perfect. Okay. So here's what I would do. One, I would ask you, do you have time on your calendar to do that? Like is it literally in your calendar? Yes. Yes. Okay. Terrific. So that's step one. Make time for traction. Uh, and is there sufficient time in your calendar as well? Yep. Yep. Okay. Terrific. The next step is to hack back the external trigger. So when you say, okay, I'm going to edit this podcast for 45 minutes. Well, how long is the stint? Let me ask that first. Let's say, uh, let's say a two-hour window. Let's say a two-hour window. Two-hour window with without a break? Could be one or two breaks, perhaps. Could be one or two breaks. Okay, so I would schedule that as well. So consider maybe doing you know 30, 45 minutes stint and then taking a five, 10 minute break. Because uh, two hours can be can be tough, right? It can just be uh, a little bit exhausting uh, from a mental perspective. So maybe sure. consider you, you would feel less internal triggers if you broke up the task a little bit. So it was a, a 30, 45 minute sprint as opposed to a whole two hours. That's, that's pretty tough. Um, then the, the external trigger. So when you sit down for that 45-minute uh, podcast editing uh, uh, period of time, do you have any external triggers, uh, the pings, the dings, the emails, the notifications, you're on your phone, on your computer, other people that interrupt you? Plenty. <laughs> Plenty, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay, so that's an important step. So in, in the book, I talk about how in eight different environments between uh, you know your computer, your cell phone, group chat, meetings, open floor plan offices, all of these different environments are full of external triggers. And I, I tell you in the book, you know, in, in about an hour's time, this will not be a problem for you anymore. If you just learn what to do, and I just tell you step by step by step what to do on your phone, what to do on your computer, what to do if you work in an open floor plan office, all of these things you can do to hack back the external trigger. And I'm not telling you to do this all day. I'm telling you for that 45-minute sprint of time where you're going to edit and be super productive, when you have yourself decided that's what you want to do, that's the small period of time when you are going to turn off all the external triggers. You're going to hack them back so that nothing other than what you're doing can get your attention. That's the next step. The, the, the step after that is to prevent distraction with packs. So what happens when you've scheduled the time, you've, um, ter- you've hacked back all the external triggers, and yet there's, there's this um, uh, urge to get distracted. So maybe it's not any external trigger, but you feel maybe an internal trigger of, uh, you know, this is, this is boring and I just, I, I need to do something else for a minute. So what I want you to do is to use these pacts and there are three types of pacts that you can use, uh, an effort pact, a price pact and a, and a identity pact. An effort pact is probably the easiest. This is probably what I would recommend for a task like this. This is where we can use technology against itself. 
So we can use free tools like Forest and Rescue Time and Focus Mate and Freedom, all of these free tools that block out all of these uh, uh, these potential distractions. Not in the way the the external triggers are blocked out, right? That's about turning off the external triggers. This is more about keeping ourselves in, not turning the external triggers off. So when I work on my laptop, I have this app right here. I'm looking at it. It's called Self-Control. And Self-Control blocks out Gmail when I do my focused work time. So I would suggest to you when you say, okay, here's my 45 minutes of podcast editing, you push self-control. By the way, there's another company, Focusmate, that I invested in that does something similar with another person, also a great tool. You push this button, you start this app, you use this service, and now if you want to get dist get distracted and check email or just do this one quick thing, this thing that is known to take you off track, you can't do it, <laughs> right? It's just a quick reminder that you made a pact with yourself that this is what you wanted to do. It's, it helps you keep a promise with yourself. So that's that's the, the third thing I would do. And then finally, and this is the hardest and most important step, uh, is understanding your internal triggers. And this is where this the, the other three solutions are pretty easy, right? If you know what to do, you can do this pretty pretty darn easily. The internal trigger part is a little tricky because sometimes it's just about learning ways to manage those internal triggers. And we, we talked about some of those techniques around how we can turn our actions into play, uh, how we can see the tasks differently. Um, we can also – oh, a technique I didn't mention that's, that's fantastic that I'd love for you to try is called the 10-minute rule. And this comes out of acceptance and commitment therapy. And so what I want you to do next time that you find yourself about to get distracted – so let's say it's uh, you know you're editing a podcast and you find yourself about to reach for your phone to check Instagram for a second. I want you instead to just recognize that feeling. Okay? Don't don't judge yourself. Don't berate. Many people say, "Oh, there there I go. I'm such a bad person. I have a short attention span, an addictive personality." Don't berate yourself. Get curious. Say, talk. Use the self-talk that we talked about earlier. There I go, reaching for my phone because I'm feeling anxious, boredom, whatever it might be. And then I want you to just write down that sensation. Uh, in the book, I actually give what's called a distraction tracker to help you do this. And then I want you to tell your phone to turn on a timer for 10 minutes. This is called the 10-minute rule. And this, the 10-minute rule says that you can do anything you want to do. You can give into that temptation in 10 minutes, okay, just 10 minutes. And for those 10 minutes, you have two choices. You can either get back to work or sit with that sensation. This is called surfing the urge. As we talked about earlier, these negative sensations, they're not permanent states. They come and go. But in the moment, we feel like, oh my God, this is urgent. I need to get out of this uncomfortable sensation. This is how distraction tricks us. Instead, what we can say is, okay, I'm feeling bored right now. This is hard. This is frustrating. I'm looking for escape. Let me sit with this sensation for a minute. Getting curious about the sensation, not berating ourselves, not, not negative self-talk, but just curiosity with acceptance. You will find that 99% of the time at the end of those 10 minutes, that feeling is gone, and you'll just get back to the task at hand. Uh, and so that's that's the 10-minute rule. So basically what we just did for your podcast – for the next time you edit your podcast – we, we made time for the task. We hacked back the external triggers. We used a, a pre-commitment. We used a pact to prevent distraction. And now you have some techniques to uh, master those internal triggers. We've done internal triggers, and I feel like that is a huge part to cover. Um, we, we've really given some useful information, which, which we really appreciate. Sure. Let's, let's look at external triggers. And I, I feel like this is, this is a major 
sticking block and you know, I mean, no offence you, but but I do feel as if you were one of the evil masterminds behind some of these. <laughs> <laughs> so, when we speak about distraction, do you feel as if it's a case that handheld information devices have always had detrimental effects, or do you feel as if you mentioned earlier you went back twenty five hundred years? I know one example you talked about was the Swiss scientist Conrad Gessner in 1565. What's your opinion on that? Well, I think this is where we have to be careful about uh, moral judgments of other people's behavior. Um, Again, with the exception of children and people who are pathologically addicted, uh, as good as these external triggers are, as good as these technologies are at, at capturing our attention, we are much more powerful. There is no excuse. Unless you are addicted or you're a child, you as an adult can do this. You just need to want to do it and try to do it. Uh, and, and, and you know, it's, it's interesting. So in my first book, Hooked, uh, and, and I take the, the tongue-in-cheek concept that you think that, that I'm responsible for this stuff. By the way, I own no shares in Facebook or Google. They've never paid me. I, I have no – like the reason I wrote Hooked was not for them. They knew these techniques for years. The reason I wrote the book was for the companies that are helping people save money and exercise and build SaaS software. Like that's that's where we need more habit-forming products, not with you know gaming companies. They've known this for years. It's really about these companies that are building the kind of products and services that it can improve people's lives if they only used the product. So that's who I wrote the book for. But the best way I can kind of answer your question is by referring you to the case study in Hooked. The last chapter of Hooked is, is a case study, and it's the only case study in the book, the only chapter devoted to one product, and that one product is the Bible app. The Bible app, not some video game, not social media, the Bible. It's one of the most popular apps in the world. Hundreds of millions of people use this app every day. Uh, in fact, there was a funny story that the CEO, Bobby Greenwald, told me. He told me that uh, somebody emailed him and told him that uh, they were walking into a strip club and their phone pinged them with a message from the Bible app. And the, the, the guy said, oh, my Lord, you know, the, the, the Bible is telling me to, to not go into the, the strip club. And he turned around and left. <laughs> so, so the reason I did that, I did that very intentionally. I didn't do a case study on a gaming company or social media company because I wanted something a little bit more nuanced. And this is the reality of the world we live in. If you want good versus evil, go read a fairy tale. That's not real life. In real life, there's nuance. And this is, a, this is something we lose in our society. We are, we are looking for binary thinking, right? Good versus evil. That's not real life. The, the real life is a bit more nuanced. There's more here. So for example, if you believe that the Bible app is a source for good in the world, that it helps people find connection with other believers, that it gives them purpose and meaning in life, well, then you think that the Bible app is a great habit. But if you think that religion causes divisiveness among people and is not a force for good, then you think the Bible app is a bad habit. L- let me give you another example. If I told you, hey, guys, uh, I'm going to start a routine of running. Is that a good behavior or a bad behavior? Should I get into that routine? You say, oh, yeah, running. That's physical fitness. Great. Do it. But then if I tell you, you know what, let, let, me, uh, let me tell you something. I need to be a little vulnerable here because the reason I want to run more is because I can't stand my job. Uh, I hate my boss. Uh, I hate my wife. I hate my kids. They're driving me crazy. And the only place I can escape is by running. That runner's high is the only place I can get psychological relief. And then you'd say, hey, uh, Nir, I don't know if that's so healthy, right? I think you probably should deal with what's going on in your life. 
But then if I told you, actually, you know what? Um, the reason I run is because I used to have a problem with alcohol. And I find if I run, it's my outlet as opposed to more drink. Well, then you might say, oh, okay, well, that makes sense. That's Now that's a good routine. So you see, it's not so simple. It's not that Facebook, good, bad, Instagram, good, bad. That doesn't work that way. It's about who is using, how much they're using, what they're doing, and what they are displacing. That's the whole picture. We can't just cast these blanket judgments of, you know, I know what everybody should do with their time, or even I know what I should do with my time, without some introspection. We have to think about what's serving us versus what are we serving. Love that so much. And something which I would love to ask you, just following on from this, is if we delve into external triggers. I, f- I feel now as if the 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 lay public, the the just the average person browsing through Instagram, they probably know that they probably know that dopamine fires as soon as they get a, a notification, an email, a text, any of these things. I would love to know is that is there an oversimplification or or does it go much deeper than that? Is there a much greater response? So there's a there's a neuroscience joke that's not very funny, but I'll tell it to you anyway, <laughs> which goes, "What's the role of dopamine in the brain?" And the punchline is to confuse neuroscientists. <laughs> that's that's the role of dopamine in the brain because. Uh, Dopamine does a lot of things. Uh, dope, you know what, what the media and uninformed critics say dopamine does. They use it like it's cocaine in the brain, that it makes you, uh, you know, addicted to something. And while dopamine does play a role in addiction, dopamine plays a role in every learned behavior. Dopamine, what dopamine does, is tell you. Uh, is, is form a memory, form an association between a learned behavior and that action. So everything pleasurable releases dopamine. When you learn to play tennis, dopamine. When you learn to play piano, dopamine. When you learn a new language, dopamine. All of these things involve dopamine, <laughs> right? And so none of this makes it cocaine, right? None of it makes it heroin. That's not how it works. But of course, here's what the media twists. They say, ooh, social media releases dopamine just like an addiction. No, nothing like addiction. (laughs) Addiction is a persistent compulsive dependency on a behavior or substance that harms the user. It is something that people, despite efforts to try and stop, keep harming themselves. The vast majority of us, when it comes to our social media accounts, our, our Twitter accounts, our technology accounts, we haven't done jack. We haven't even tried to put it in its place. Now, some people do get pathologically addicted, just as some people get addicted to alcohol. Not everybody's an alcoholic. People get addicted to sex. We're not all sex addicts. Uh, Lots of behaviors addict somebody but don't addict everyone. The problem is when we have this culture of, ooh, the big bad tech companies are addicting us, it obfuscates the real distraction. The real distraction is not the technology. The real distraction is this bullshit that distracts us from the real problem inside of us. That's the real distraction. The distraction is the myth that the tools do it to us. Of course the tools play a role. And by the way, there is lots of stuff that I don't like that the tech companies are doing, right? Their monopoly status, their use of data, uh, election meddling, all kinds of stuff they need to fix. But when it comes to this one specific thing, this moral panic that it's melting our minds and hijacking our brains, 
it is not true and it is not helpful. What would you say is the critical question for determining the success of an external trigger? So the critical question is to ask ourselves with an external trigger, is this external trigger serving me or am I serving it? Right? If that external trigger is prompting you to traction, right? as I mentioned earlier, if it's, a, if it's an alarm that says, hey, time to work out, and that's what was on your schedule to do, well, then terrific. That external trigger was serving you. But if it's an external trigger that takes you off track, right? if I got a notification when I planned to be with my daughter and now I'm checking social media as opposed to being fully present with someone I love, well, now it's a distraction. So it's really about asking ourselves which triggers are serving me and which am I serving. Uh, not just on our phones, but also you know, in the workplace, for example. Every copy of my book, Indistractable, comes with a screen sign. It's, it's this uh, uh, piece of cardstock in the middle of the book that you pull out, you fold it into thirds, and you literally put it on your monitor to tell your colleagues, I'm indistractable, please don't bother me right now, please come back later. Right, because that turns out to be a huge source of distraction in the workplace is other people saying, "Hey, what's going on? You want to chit chat?" Yeah, I do, but not right now, because right now that would be a distraction. What are some of the most critical aspects about managing inputs? Can we really expect to achieve great things whilst our inputs are a mess? Quite frankly. Yeah. So, so th- this is about uh, this myth of the to-do list. Uh, that somehow we've been told in the productivity uh, sphere that if you just put everything down on a to-do list, it'll magically get get done. And that's half the, the, the solution. It's not the complete answer. The reason it's not the complete answer is because the things on your to-do list are your outputs, right? That's what you want to accomplish as you make good use of your time. What we don't think about is the input, and, and this is ridiculous, right? Take this on to any other context. In, in the So this is what we do as knowledge workers, but if you think about, let, let's say a baker was to say, I want to make uh, 100 loaves of bread, and they put it on their to-do list. Are the 100 loaves of bread just going to appear? No. They need to think about the inputs. The inputs are flour and water and yeast and time and all that stuff they have to do to make the bread. And we somehow... Do that. You know, this is obvious when we think of a baker. It's not so obvious when we think about knowledge work, because what most people do is they put stuff on a to-do list. Okay, half the that's the step one. Step two is putting those tasks on your calendar. That if you don't make time for traction, it won't get done. And so that's that's a critical lesson. We've got to put those things on our calendar. I I feel as if this has been such a hugely beneficial episode and we'll just start to just to wind things down now i feel like a great place to take this down now would be to the the pre-commitments and to the pacts and if we look back at the example which you gave with the editing of the podcast Mm -hmm. one thing which i know in the early days before we had anyone edit these things for us was that what what really got you through editing, say, like a long podcast, was the fact that we'd made a commitment to our audience that every single Monday, every other Thursday, that the, you would get a podcast at the exact time. What examples of, say, commitments can we make that can motivate ourselves? 
Yeah, so so there are three types of these pre-commitments, an effort pact, a price pact, and an identity pact. Uh, the effort pact is something like we talked about with Forest, where you use an app, uh, you use some kind of pre-commitment device to make a little bit of friction between you and the behavior you don't want to do. Uh, so whether that's the Forest app that I use, that every time I sit down and write, you know, you, you, you turn on this app and uh, you plant a little virtual tree and the virtual tree dies if you pick up the app and do anything with it, or an app on your phone that, uh, I mean, on your computer that blocks out certain websites you don't want to use. Of course, you could figure it out, right? You you could reboot your computer and still use your email, but it's that little bit of friction, that little bit of, of uh, effort that prevents you from doing something you don't want to do. So that's an example of an effort pact. Uh, a price pact is when there's some kind of cost, some kind of financial incentive uh, or disincentive to not do or do what you want to do. Uh, and so, you know, in the case of you saying, I'm going to uh, deliver this podcast every week, uh, rain or shine. That would be, you know, if your livelihood depends on it, then that would very much be an example of, of a price pact. Uh, I did something similar when I made a bet with my friend to finish my manuscript for the book. I'd been researching it for four years, and then it was time to actually, you know, finish the manuscript and write the, the write the, the the techniques. And so I made a bet with my friend Mark for ten thousand dollars, and I told him if we if if I don't finish the book by January first. Uh, I, I will pay him ten thousand dollars, and of course, you know, it hurt like hell to shake his hand. <laughs> it was <laughs> scary, but of course, I kept my money and I finished my manuscript. Wow. And this is actually this isn't just a personal you know technique. This has been shown to be the number one most effective smoking cessation technique ever tried. Uh, is when people put something at stake, when they put some something on the line, some skin in the game, uh, in the form of some kind of financial incentive. So it can work in various aspects. By the way, again, I want to repeat. This only works last. Only do the pacts after you have made time for traction, mastered the internal triggers, and hacked back the external triggers because if you do this out of order, it can actually backfire. So you want to make sure you do those other three steps first. And then the last step is this identity pact, which kind of brings us full circle to our conversation because it has to do with you seeing me in a t-shirt <laughs> uh, that says indistractable. An identity pact is all about creating some kind of self-image that helps you do what it is you say you're going to do. So this now it should be you know pretty clear why I call the book indistractable. This is the moniker. This is the identity I want people to take in their lives to, to tell themselves more than anybody else that they are the kind of person who strives to do what they say they're going to do. And just like how a, a vegetarian or a person who's religious doesn't do certain behaviors because it's part of their identity, so can we use becoming indistractable to help us do the things we want to do. That is amazing. And on this show, we, we, we love getting the knowledge from the people that have it. And we also love take immediately trying to put it into action so if i say to you now Nia, issue us with a challenge let if we just focus on say the external triggers what would your challenge be to us and to our audience maybe one to three things to either start doing or to stop doing that we can do today mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, go buy the book. That would be the first step. <laughs> and and if you don't, you know, I think it's like sixteen, seventy dollars. If you don't have sixteen, seventy dollars, that's okay. Just go pirate it from somewhere. I don't really care. But get this knowledge because it's it's it's. I, I wish I could put it in a soundbite. And I, and it, it, I get this a lot. Uh, and it's it's 
the tactics are not as important as the strategy. There are lots and lots of tactics in the book about you know how you can hack back external triggers and tools you can use. I'll give you some some links in the show notes that you can. I built various tools that are free that are not in the book that you can uh, share with the listeners as well. But the most important thing is to understand the model. Because when you use these four steps together, when you understand the strategy, again, tactics are what you do. Strategy is why you do it. And if you understand the strategy, you'll you'll know how to fix these distractions in the future. You can look and say, oh, you know, was it an internal trigger that got me? Was it that I didn't plan my day properly? Was it an external trigger? Can I use a pre-commitment? You'll know. You can ask yourself, okay, how do I prevent this? From distracting me again in the future. The, the, the goal of becoming indistractable is not to never get distracted. That's not the real world. Distraction happens. People get sick. You got to pee. <laughs> like stuff happens that will take you off track. The idea is that you figure out the things that you can do something about and you make sure that you don't continually get distracted from them again and again and again. <laughs> Perfect. So, so step one, we've got go out and buy the book. <laughs> are, are there any other things which which you'd like us to start doing, which we could we could start doing today? I think I think in terms of a mind shift, mm-hmm. uh, if we could stop blaming uh, forces outside ourselves, I want people to believe that they are much more powerful than they currently think. Uh, that instead of blaming these things for doing stuff to us, it's much more productive uh, to, to, to have what's called an internal locus of control, that we have the power to resist these things if we know how and if we take the steps to do so. Do you have one last one for us? Let's see. So the last one um, – so there's a tool I'll give you a link to that I think is, is kind of a life changer. So I built this tool, uh, and this helps you with that second step of make time for traction. Mm-hmm. And the idea with this tool is to design a template for what your ideal week should look like. Now, not your ideal week once, you know, if you have a week vacation in the Bahamas. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about your, your ideal week in the real world where you are making time for your values, where you have time in your calendar for all the things that are important to you. And what building this schedule helps you do is create a template so that finally you can look to that template and understand the difference between what is traction and what is distraction. Anything on that template, anything on that calendar, it'll take you maybe 30 minutes to make it, is traction. Anything that's not on there is a source of distraction. And having that template easily accessible, it's something you can print out, you can have on your on your screen or whatever you want, allows you to, to really change your life. Because then you 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 think in advance. You know, one of, one of the things that's so amazing about our species is our ability to plan ahead. As I mentioned earlier, the antidote for impulsiveness is forethought. And so by just taking a few minutes, now that you know you do it the first time, it takes you 30 minutes. I do it every week. It takes me now only 15 minutes to do it. And now I have a template for what my week should look like, and I can finally get control over all those distractions because I know the difference, right? I know the difference between what is traction and distraction because if you don't know uh, what you want to do, well, then everything becomes a potential distraction. So I'll give you the link for the show notes for that tool as well. Thank you so much. That That is so helpful, and we will link that below. For everybody listening, just swipe up on this episode and you will see it. We've got just a couple of questions left. My pleasure. One of the questions we'd love to know is you've done so much fascinating work into behavioral psychology. I love how you talk about the the theory, you delve back in history, you 
delve. I mean, you talk about Latin, about Tentless, all these examples, which I love. But we'd love to know, what are some of the most effective habits that you have personally formed? Mm-hmm. And we'd love to know if, if you could give us specific examples of how they have benefited your life. Yeah, so w- we need to be careful about how we use uh, habits versus routines. There's a lot of confusion out there between habits and routines. Uh, so let me just spend a moment kind of defining the two. You know, you, you can tell words really matter to me. Sure, <laughs> because, of course, yeah, please. You know, we, we have to define this stuff correctly or we can cause more confusion than it's worth. So a lot of folks, when they say uh, you know, they, wanna, they want a habit, what they really mean is that they want something to be effortless. You know, I, I want to I want to write a book, so I want to get into the writing habit. Uh, I want to have a good looking body, and so I want to get into the habit of exercise. The problem is, many behaviors cannot be habits by definition. What's the definition of a habit? A habit is defined as an impulse to do a behavior with little or no conscious thought. I don't know about you, but writing for me is never something I do with little or no conscious thought. Unless I'm writing gobbledygook, how can it possibly be done as a behavior with little or no conscious thought? It's hard, right? I have to think about what I'm writing. If I'm in the gym and I'm trying to break a personal record, that's hard. That's deliberate practice. That is not a habit. What it is is a routine, and there's a big difference between a routine and a habit. Every habit starts as a routine, but not every routine can become a habit. Something that requires a lot of conscious thought – will never become a habit. So what? So you say, okay, big deal near. So you, you, okay, you define some words for us, big deal. We could have looked that up in the dictionary. The reason this is so important is because many people out there attempt to start a habit and then one day they realize this isn't easy. I've been doing this for a month, two months, and it hasn't gotten easy. It hasn't gotten effortless. It's not a habit. There must be something wrong with me. And then they quit. Instead, what we should realize is that some behaviors will just never, ever become habits, and that's fine. We should keep them as routines and not expect them to suddenly become effortless. While other behaviors can actually become a a habit and can become effortless. But remember, it has to be things done with little or no conscious thought. These behaviors that we just do day in, day out, uh, you know, driving a car is a habit. When you first learn to drive a car, it's, you know, you're, 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 you're white knuckling as you're learning as a teenager. It's very, you know, you're, you're thinking all the time. And then as you get older, it becomes habituated. You, you know, it's like riding a bike or driving a car. You, you learn these things and you don't have to think about every little action. So we want to be very careful about what we call a habit versus a routine. I have lots and lots of productive routines in my life, uh, exercising regularly, writing routine, spending time with my family, things that are on my calendar week after week after week because, by the way, the definition of a routine is just a behavior frequently repeated. Uh, So I have lots of healthy routines. I don't know if I have a ton of of habits per se. uh, one I would say is is productive is this habit I have with an app called Fitbod, which is a terrific example of a of an app that uh, uses the hook model from my first book about building a healthy exercise habit. The the app solves this problem of when you go to the gym and you don't know what to do. It's not for the person who's a muscle head. It's not for the couch potato. It's for the person in between who goes to the gym and has no clue what to do. And so the internal trigger it addresses is uncertainty. 
And so the habit is created when every time you go to the gym and you don't know what to do, you open the app with little or no conscious thought, and the app tells you what to do through this variable reward mechanic. And then you put data into the app based on how many reps you did, how many sets, how much weight you did, and then that becomes the the hook model there that gets you into the habit uh, in the gym. So the habit itself is not the exercise. The habit is using the app. It's very specific, using it with little or no conscious thought when I don't know what to do in the gym. So that that's a healthy habit I could give. My brother actually recently started using that app. Oh, yeah? Um, and bef- before, it, before he was using that app, he was getting sort of disheartened with the gym and turning up and not knowing exactly what exercises to do, which led him to get bored. And uh, he said since he's used that app, it's completely changed his attitude when going to the gym. Beautiful, beautiful. So what a great example of you know, using habits for good, how we can use a habit-forming technology. It's not just about Facebook and Instagram and all these bad habits. We can really use this stuff for great things. I mean, exactly. the same happened to me. I hated going to the gym because I didn't freaking know what to do. <laughs> and, and you know, so, so this app really helped fix that problem. Exactly. Good with the bad. Um, now, <laughs> before we let you go, I have three quick questions for you that we ask every guest that comes on the show so they're not they're not specific the first one is you're obviously um a well-respected author yourself i mean we're looking at hooked from across the room right now indistractable's on its way out and your books have undoubtedly impacted people's lives are there any books that you can say you've read in your life that have impacted you Sure. Yeah, I'll give you uh, a few. I'll give you um, uh, fiction, nonfiction, and research. I'll give you three. Is that okay? That's perfect. Okay, great. So the the nonfiction, uh, there's a great book. If you want to know what addiction really is about, uh, it's not so simple as people think that addiction is about addictive products. There's a great book by Johan Hari. Uh, um, that uh, he he dives into the science of addiction in, in a really great way. In, the book is called Lost Connections, and he says how the the opposite of addiction, and he's talking about pathology here. He's not talking about overuse. Uh, the opposite of addiction is not sobriety. Uh, the opposite of addiction is connection. It's a really great book, and uh, the 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 piece of research that's probably influenced my work more than anything else in the world that I've ever uh, encountered is the work of Desi and Ryan on self-determination theory. And this is kind of the most widely accepted theory of human motivation, uh, and it features prominently throughout my work, uh, this this idea that we have these psychological nutrients. Those are, that's my term, not theirs, so I don't want to put that on them. But basically that we have these three things, competency, autonomy, and relatedness, uh, which are the, the backbone of human psychological flourishing. And then the fiction book is uh, Moby Dick. Uh, Moby Dick is this classic American novel that uh, has these themes of uh, of focusing on something so intently, of wanting something so much that it drives you to distraction. There's a lot of overlapping themes from what we've been talking about here, and I I just found it to be a a fantastic uh, piece of fiction. Are there any societal rules which you love to break? Oh my God! Where do I get started? <laughs> That's I, I. I mean, there's so much about my life that uh, you know. I, I like questioning convention. Uh, that's I kind of get off on that <laughs> when I see the world one way, and then somebody tells me something that uh, you know from a credible source that that changes my worldview. I, I can't think of something better than that. I love it. Um, so yeah, I do all kinds of of weird things in my life from 
the way I eat, uh, the way I exercise, the way I raise my kid. Uh, uh, I, I like challenging convention. If everybody believes that something is one way, uh, there's usually something there that provides fertile ground to, to, to challenge the status quo, especially if it's something new, right? If it's something that we haven't dealt with before. I think the, the, the innate human tendency to jump to conclusions is typically wrong. Fantastic. So the last question we have for you, um, I'm going to pitch you a scenario. So imagine that every person on the planet is tuned in to the exact same frequency. Someone has come to you, they've said, Nia, you have the opportunity to broadcast a message to everybody in the world, a short but impactful message. And I will add one rule. The message can't be to buy your new book. <laughs> what would your short and impactful message to the world be? Uh, don't look for easy answers, <laughs> because uh, yeah, I kind of flipped the question on the on its head. Because if I said anything in a in a short pithy message, it wouldn't be taken seriously anyway. Uh, that that the the whole point I think is we've I think we've moved to a, a place where just by the nature of the speed of communication, we like sound bites. We like easy answers, easy solutions. And the solutions are never easy to complex problems. They're always something that requires a little bit more depth. And so I think that would be, be my message. Look for the root causes, not just the proximal causes. Yeah, what an absolutely fantastic uh, podcast this has been. Where can our audience connect with you? Thank you. Yeah, my uh, blog is at nearandfar.com, and near is like my first name, N-I-R, so nearandfar.com. And uh, the book is called Indistractable, How to Control Your Attention and Choose Your Life. If you go to indistractable.com, there are all kinds of tools and resources there that aren't in the book that I couldn't fit, uh, like an 80-page workbook and a distraction tracker, a video course, all kinds of uh, resources there that are complimentary at indistractable.com, and that's spelled I-N, distract. A-B-L-E, so indistractable, indistractable.com. What an absolute pleasure it's been. When when does the book come out? Yes, in October, is it? Well, so in the States, it comes out September 10th. In uh, the rest of the world, for, in English at least, it comes out October 17th. It seems crazy that, that the book isn't out yet. We've been, we've been talking about the book for months. It seems crazy. <laughs> Well, oh, so I should mention the audiobook is actually available right now. So oh, well. if you are an Audible subscriber, or even if you're not, you can you can get it as an audiobook. That is amazing. Well, we cannot thank you enough. This conversation, wow, I mean, it's one of the most valuable ones we've we've had on the show. So we cannot thank you enough for coming on, and uh, yeah, what an absolute pleasure. My pleasure. This was great. Thank you so much. Great questions, and uh, it was it was my honor. Thank you for having me. <laughs>